Bugün kimse kaybetmemiştir. On Sunday, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan addressed the nation from the balcony of his palace after winning a tight race against opposition candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. It was a defiant speech to an adoring crowd and a deeply divided country, with just under half the nation voting for the opposition. Erdogan had hoped for a swift victory, but skyrocketing inflation and a devastating earthquake left him vulnerable at the ballot box, forcing him into a runoff. For two decades, Erdogan has loomed large over Turkish politics, gradually concentrating powers and cracking down on his political opponents and critics. Abroad, the election was closely followed by Turkey's NATO allies and Moscow. So what does Erdogan's victory mean for Turkey, its society and its foreign policy? Today, I am joined in Oslo by Prio senior researcher Pinar Tank, a specialist of Turkish domestic and foreign policy, and Professor Ilan Uzgel in Ankara, who lost his academic position after being dismissed by a presidential decree in 2017. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Pinar, let's dive right in. Is this the result you were expecting? And what was decisive in this election? Yes, I think it was actually the result that very many analysts were expecting, and even the opposition. I think they went to the polls with some hope, but generally this was the, the result that many thought would happen. And I think part of it is that um, in Turkey, p- political culture valorizes the strong man. And the electorate was just more convinced by Erdogan's authoritarian leadership in a time of crisis than the alternatives that were presented by the alliance of parties under the opposition banner. And, you know, not least, the, it was an expected result because there's overwhelming control over state institutions and the broadcast media. So it wasn't, not only was it possible for the opposition candidate to get his message out, but he was also maligned on state TV and accused of being a terrorist. In fact, in cohorts with the illegal Kurdistan workers uh, party militia. So this made it really impossible for him to win over segments of the conservative uh, electorate in the Turkish heartland in particular, who really rely on broadcast media. And there was also the opposition's decision to collaborate with the ultra-nationalist Victory Party, which meant that they lost some of the votes in the Kurdish areas. Um, We saw this in the numbers of people that didn't turn up in the voting booths as a result. Right, and I'll get to the media landscape in a second. But Ilhan, this was the first serious challenge to Erdogan's regime in a generation. Six opposition parties united behind Kemal Kilishtaoru, And polls were telling us that the margins were small, but that there was the possibility of an opposition victory in the first round. So why did Kemal Kilishtaoru fail to convince the nation? Well, there are many reasons. I mean, the opposition uh, parties, I mean, six of them, I mean, they're united, but that was not enough. Because four of the opposition parties, they have very little voting base. Two of them were already part of the Erdogan's party previously. They were defectors uh, from Erdogan's. So they, they're disliked by both sides and they don't have any strong voting base. And the, 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 there were basically two parties in, in the opposition. Secondly, I mean, Turkey is a, is a conservative society and polarization, which was used as a, as a political strategy by Erdogan, who ruled the country for more than 20 years, 
So it, it is very difficult to change the votes of the voters in polarized societies. So those who doesn't like Erdogan, they don't vote for, for the opposition. They vote for other party that allied with, with Erdogan. We didn't have this before, that a leader has his own very loyal, very staunch voting base. Whatever Erdogan makes, he's got such a mandate from the from his audience that it is tolerated. I mean, all the corruption uh, allegations, all the failures in foreign policy, in economy, they, they, they think that Erdogan is one of them and they, they, they don't switch their votes. Plus, the, the opposition party and the opposition leader, they have made fatal mistakes during the campaign, during the process that they were preparing themselves for, for the elections. It, it, it takes longer time to, to, to describe all of them. Yeah, I'd just also like to add that, to, to sort of add to what Ilhan is saying here. It's this, this idea also that uh, should the opposition come to power, they would lose a lot of the rights that they've had and the voice that they've had. So you have this really polarized situation, like he, he mentions in his remarks, and a fear underneath it, of course. Right. And I, I want to pick up on something that Ilhan said, that Turkey is a conservative society. Pinar, you recently wrote an op-ed in Norwegian newspaper Aften Posten about a popular soap opera that seemed to have taken Turkey by storm recently. I won't pronounce the Turkish name, I will leave that to you, but it translates in English as cranberry sorbet. Annem eğitimci olduğu için despottur biraz. Ben hala bilmiyor galiba. And you wrote about a scene where a young conservative woman who is in love with another man is married off by her family to another against her own wishes. And on her wedding night, in an argument with her new husband, she's pushed off the balcony, but she survives the fall. And you've written how that dramatic scene led to a lot of debate on Twitter and in the streets of Turkey, and how it signaled some of the dissatisfaction of conservative women in Turkey and with the AKP. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, of course. I thought this was really interesting to sort of see how politics and popular culture were merging because this became a viral tweet on Twitter. The heroine Nursima, many people were asking, how would Nursima vote? And uh, this was on the background also of some evidence that we were getting from conservative women who were moving away from the AKP because the AKP had allied itself with even more conservative parties. You know, as you know, Turkey pulled out of the Istanbul Convention in 2020. And this was of great concern in a country where femicide in particular, falling off balconies, is a big problem. And anyone looking at a map of results for the second round will immediately see a country geographically divided. You've got Kemal Kilishtaoru, who won in the big cities like Istanbul, Ankara, and the coastal regions of the Aegean and Mediterranean seas and the eastern Kurdish regions, which border Georgia, Armenia, Iran, and Iraq. While the central regions of Turkey voted in their majority for Erdogan. Ilhan, can you explain that divide for us? Uh, yeah, this divide has been, it's, something, it's not something new. I mean, we have it for a long time. That inner parts of Turkey, more conservative, and those who vote for, for Erdogan, they tend to be less educated, Uh, with less income and mostly living in, in rural areas. Although Erdogan has a popular vote uh, in, in, in the outskirts of the cities too, 
but I mean, that, that, that's quite common. I mean, it's like, uh, you can call it a Turkey's Bible Belt. I mean, like in inner areas, you know, they tend to be more nationalistic, more religious. In general, they're more conservative. Whereas younger people, I mean, they have a kind of a dislike for Erdogan. And, and you, the older you get, you tend to vote for, for uh, Erdogan. So, I mean, the, the, there's a sociological thing. There's a, you know, po- underlying reasons of political economy that if you have a higher income, if you're well-educated, if you're urbanized, so if you have a more modern uh, lifestyle, you, you tend to vote for, for the opposition parties, whereas Erdogan represents the, uh, the values of the in, inner, inner Turkey, uh, rural Turkey, that is more religious, kind of more nationalist, they're, you know, most goers, uh, they, they're impressed by Erdogan's uh, style of rule. So it's, it's not surprising for, for, for observers of Turkish politics and society for a long time. So and this pattern, this has been a pattern. So we have seen this pattern again. And, but the problem with Erdogan is that with the, with the rise of uh, education, um, with, with the rise of urbanization, uh, he, he, in the, in the next, Decade, uh, any, any, any politician like Erdogan and any conservative politician will have some more difficulty in getting the votes. I just wanted to add also that what's interesting is uh, what Ilhan is saying is absolutely the case, but abroad, a lot of voters who were vote- sending in their votes from abroad from social democratic countries were also voting for, for Erdogan. And oh. this is, was kind of interesting. And, and many people asked, you know, how can this be? They're living in democratic egalitarian societies. And yet when they vote, they vote for Erdogan. And there, I think it was a lot of the um, impact that Erdogan's uh, foreign policies and his, his foreign policy activism on the world stage has meant a lot for Turks living abroad who often feel themselves marginalized in the societies that they're living in, but see a great leader that gives them a sense of pride. And, you know, once a year they come back to Turkey, they see the the big changes, and they feel proud. And also, importantly, they're not living in the society where they're feeling the effects of an economic recession or they're feeling their futures disappearing in front of them. So there you had a completely different way of voting based on... uh, completely different factors, actually. That's fascinating because what you are getting at, basically, is that the assumption in the West was that for the Turkish diaspora, having access to free media, in a sense, would perhaps encourage them to be more critical towards Erdogan. And what you're saying is that that wasn't really the case. And going back to something you said earlier, Pinar, that the campaign was competitive and largely free, but that the media landscape wasn't necessarily so in Turkey. That was echoed by the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which had a team of observers on the ground. And in their preliminary findings for the second round, they said that biased media coverage and the lack of a level playing field gave an unjustified advantage to the incumbent, Mr. Erdogan. So, despite Erdogan tilting the political playing field completely to his advantage, it seems the elections were mostly free, if not entirely fair. Would that be a correct assessment? 
Yes, well, I mean, they certainly were not fair, but I would also challenge the question of how we describe free. Is it this narrow understanding of the ability of citizens to physically vote and know that their vote counts and not be threatened while they're voting? Or is it the freedom to have a selection of candidates that can present a real challenge? And so by a narrow definition of freedom, yes, it was free, but we need to be aware of these limitations. For example, the very popular mayor of Istanbul, Imam Ola, couldn't run because he was facing a case in court. And so in a sense, what you're presented with is an opposition candidate that might not be as strong. So do you really then have freedom? If you think of this freedom as simply being able to cast your vote, then yes, they were free, but not fair. So Erdogan has cited the freedom of citizens to vote and the high turnout as an indication of the strength of Turkey's democracy. But we need to be really careful when we're giving legitimacy to processes in which an authoritarian ruler such as Erdogan, who has political control over the institutions of government, holds elections and then calls them democratic. Ilhan, I want to turn to you now because you were one of the voices Erdogan tried to silence, right? You were a professor, formerly at Ankara University, where you served as chair of the International Relations Department at the Faculty of Political Science. And in 2017, you were dismissed by a presidential decree. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, yes, but I, I should dispute the term silence because I'm not silenced. I was quiet, but not silenced. Uh, I, I'm even more vocal uh, critic of Erdogan. Well, in 2000, early 2017, we signed a petition to call for peace in the Kurdish issue, criticize the heavy-handed approach of the government to, to the Kurdish issue. Then Erdogan get mad and his his media, his pro-government pro media accused us of being spreading terrorist propaganda, being, you know, uh, traitors and helping terrorists, etc. Et so we were fired from our positions, not, not only me, but around 500 academics. They were, they were lost their jobs. We were not allowed to enter the university campuses again. We were uh, not allowed to leave the country for many years. And we were not allowed to find any other jobs, etc. Et That was a ordeal for, for, for those, especially younger academics in Turkey. But the target was not only, only a few hundred uh, academics, but uh, the target was, was the whole intellectual life, whole academic life in Turkey. That was given a very clear message. If you stand up and criticize the government, so you can lose your job. You can face court trials. You can, you can be accused of uh, helping the terrorists. So I'm still have a, I, I still have a court case. But uh, it's, it's not, uh, I mean, so long as you, you can think and you can write, and despite the problems, and I'm still a critic of the government, Uh, anything that, that that's wrong in, in, in government's policies, I will maintain my position. Is is uh, is it easy? No, it's not easy. I usually avoid using Erdogan's name. I prefer to call the, the AKP government, etc., because Erdogan is somehow protected, and you 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 should better not to mention his name directly. Uh, so we try to find other ways to keep our integrity, keep our independent position in criticizing the government and its policies. Right. And now that he is re-elected, I wonder what 
you see as the future for democracy, for freedom of expression, really? What will Erdogan's continued position mean for academic freedom and freedom of expression for people like you, Ilan? That there is no strong civil society now after 20 years that could check and balance Erdogan's power. So what is waiting us, what is awaiting us is, is, is Erdogan who has a free hand in, in oppressing uh, the opposition forces in Turkey. There is nothing to, to stop him now. The EU is, is kind of an accomplice to Erdogan because he, he keeps the Syrian refugees here. He, he made a deal in 2016 that Turkey is keeping the, the Syrian and Afghan refugees in Turkey, not allowing them to cross the border. Erdogan uses, uses those people as a bargaining chip in his deal with, with, the, with, with, with the EU. And EU is happy with that. So Erdogan does not want the membership in the EU and the EU does not want Turkey's membership in the EU. So everybody is happy with that. And in, in Turkey, the, the, the big business, they are also happy with Erdogan despite their uh, occasional complaints. But in general, they are quite satisfied with, with the way Erdogan is uh, handling things. Opposition is is resilient, not, not the political parties. I'm not talking about political parties, but, but as a society, because as, as you have shown in, in, in the, in the, in the map, political map of Turkey, that those who are educated, uh, those who live in, in, in big cities, the, those, those cities that voted for the opposition candidate, they produce 75% of Turkish GDP. They are the engine of Turkish economy. They are the engine of Turkish science, uh, economy, arts, sports, etc. So they, they are moving Turkey. Uh, so Erdogan is, is, is playing with, 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 with his own audience, which is, you know, which is composed of people from inner in parts of Turkey, which relies on uh, state support, subsidies, etc. So this is the trick of, of the authoritarian leaders. So we're, I'm not, I'm not going to be an optimistic in, 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 in the future of Turkey with Erdogan, uh, at, at, uh, as a president. We haven't seen anything positive in the last 10 years at least. Right. And you said that there is nothing that can stop Erdogan now. And we've been focusing a lot over the past weeks on the struggle between two very different candidates. But the election on May 14th was also for the parliament. And here we saw that there was great success for the nationalist parties. Erdogan's party, the AKP, has the highest number of deputies. And along with its far-right ally, the Nationalist Movement Party, it has a net majority. We should also note that this has been a historic win for women in Turkey, who will now make up some 20% of deputies, the highest level ever, from 17% in a previous assembly. Pinar, the fact that the vast majority of seats in parliament were won by conservative and nationalist politicians, what does it mean for the country? 
I think, um, well, you know, like you say, two-thirds of the parliament seats went to nationalist or conservative parties. And of course, now that uh, Erdogan has a mandate for another five years, these will be people that he will need to satisfy in some way. And the worry is for a lot of, uh, that, that this will mean a, a, a kind of going moving backwards in terms of minority rights, in terms of gender and uh, LGBTQ plus rights. So we might see a much more conservative conservative agenda. And, uh, you know, already uh, for a lot of the women, you mentioned that there was a, a, a higher number of women that were voted in. Uh, some of these women come from leftist parties or from Kurdish parties where there is a very different ideology with regards to women's engagement and in society in general. And so I think there will be some tensions because of that. But generally, I think we're looking at a parliament that is much more conservative in its values. As in terms of the nationalism, of course, this is going to be uh, once again, uh, an issue for the, uh, the the Syrian refugee issue. We saw under, the, especially in the last two weeks before the election, that the opposition saw the change in the parliament as significant enough to warrant a change in the way that they approached the election. And some of the rhetoric that was coming out from the opposition was, quite frankly, very ugly regarding the refugees. And we can uh, expect some of that uh, to be repeated now and uh, perhaps uh, making it... Uh, more uh, the more pressure to do something about the Syrian refugee issue in Turkey. And obviously the result of that, that election is highly consequential for the Turks, but for the rest of the world as well. Turkey is a long-time member of NATO. And you can both correct me if I'm wrong, but under Erdogan, Turkey seems to pursue a sort of non-aligned foreign policy. The most striking example is on the war in Ukraine, On the one hand, Turkey condemned the Russian invasion and sent aid to the Ukrainian army. But on the other hand, Erdogan has pursued a closer relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. He brokered a deal allowing Ukraine to export grain across the Black Sea. So, Ilhan, what are the implications of another five years of Erdogan for Turkey's foreign policy? Uh, well, uh, just a uh, small correction uh, that is needed, that Tur Turkey is not a non-aligned country. That Turkey is a member of NATO. Erdogan pursued a balanced approach in, in the Ukrainian war. But it, it, Tur Turkey has already tilted towards the United States. Turkey, as I told you, is a very good member of NATO, despite some problems, which every country can have, like France, or like Greece or, or Hungary. But in, in, in recent months, Turkey has intensified its compliance with, with the uh, sanctions against Russia. Although Erdogan has very good ties, personal ties with, with, with Putin, but uh, it has limits because uh, Turkey is part of the Western world politically, strategically and economically. So it has its limits, uh, which is already stretched by Erdogan. But now, for a while, Erdogan is is very is, is on very good terms with the West, with the Biden administration, with, with the EU countries. Membership uh, of Finland and Sweden in NATO were issues, but Erdogan simply used them as 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 a bargaining chip uh, chip store. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that uh, Turkey is uh, against. Uh, the membership of these two countries outright, uh, in principle, no. Turkey explained clearly that Turkey is not against the membership, against the NATO uh, enlargement. For, for many years, Turkey is supporting NATO enlargement. 
but uh, and Turkey accepted and uh, ratified Finland's membership in NATO. There are some issues which uh, it's nothing to do with Erdogan, basically, that any Turkish government would, would, would want to discuss before before ratifying Sweden's Swedish membership in NATO. And, but the difference with Erdogan is that Erdogan used it domestically. He made it a big... Uh, this issue could be handled behind the doors uh, in, in diplomatic circles. But Erdogan preferred to, to make it a big deal for domestic consumption. That, that, that's the difference. And after, the, after he won the elections, he's going to ratify it, the, the membership of uh, Sweden. And it, the, the only thing is that Erdogan is trying to use it in the purchase of F-16 jets from the United States. I mean, this is quite typical of trans- transactionalism of Erdogan. So we, we, we got your state and uh, all, all con- Erdogan's counterparts, they, they, they also know it. They, they got used to Erdogan's style and they know how to deal with Erdogan. So I don't see any big deal. Yes, Erdogan has good ties with Putin, but at the end of the day, Turkey is an NATO member. Right. And you mentioned, Ilhan, that Sweden's accession to NATO has been stalled by Turkey. And as we sit here in Norway, there is this week an informal meeting of NATO ministers of foreign affairs happening in Oslo. And Sweden is actually taking part to it, despite not being an official member of the alliance. So, Pinar, now that there is no longer an election to be won for Erdogan, is he likely to soften his stance and allow Sweden to join the alliance? I think, you know, it's quite right what Ilhan said, that this was very much a part of the the election campaign and his uh, ability to then use foreign policy to project himself as a strong leader that can stop such an expansion of NATO. Uh, once that is out of the way, and I think, you know, NATO recognized this, of course, because they didn't push on this and lose their political capital by doing so. Once it's out of the way, it means that he will now be in a position to discuss more with NATO what he can get out of the deal. And he is a transactional politician. Just a, a few days ago, the um, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the U.S., a Republican uh, by the name of um, Michael McCall, mentioned or noted that it would now be possible to consider selling F-16s to Turkey. Uh, and of course, this is a kind of uh, opening up for a good gesture to try and reset relations. And this might be part of the bargain that uh, Erdogan would be willing to accept. In addition to which, of course, Sweden has decided to have has new anti-terror laws that are coming in place this summer. So then he can sell this also to his domestic public that, okay, this is what I've managed to do by stopping the the expansion of NATO. And I've managed to get this for us. So again, it's a lot about projecting this foreign policy into the, the domestic sphere. A transactional presidency then. Pinar, Ilhan, thank you both. Thank you. I thank you.